Privet, and welcome to UQ Life Abroad. Today we're going to be starting our new series, Faith in the Diaspora, and I would like to introduce our special guest, Otat Simon Skoy from St. Andrew's Ukrainian Catholic Church in Litkum. Today we will discuss exactly how COVID-19 has impacted faith in the diaspora so far, and we will also get some insight into the new bishop of Oceania, Australia and New Zealand. Otat Simon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Brianna, let's get started. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Um, Mama and I and everybody, I'm sure, loves following all of your posts on Facebook. And, um, you know, we're all following the vegetable patch that you put in for Schola, for school. And uh, we noticed that you put a photo up of a golden borscht that you made. So just to start us off, how did that taste? Oh, well, um, thank you for noticing. Uh, yeah, uh, Father Justin and I have our veggie garden out the back and... Um, he uh, grew a few seedlings from seed of uh, heirloom beetroots, and amongst them were golden beetroots, which I'd never come across before. And uh, they grew beautiful and large and uh, had to cook them. So what better way to uh, cook beetroots uh, is make borscht. And I kept it very simple uh, because I wanted to know what the actual beetroot tasted like in a borscht. So it was a, you know, a Lenten borscht, no meat, no other vegetables, just garlic, Ukrainians have to have garlic. Yeah. <laughs> and it tasted really like borscht. But the funny thing is the brain plays tricks on you. Because when you eat it, you expect it to taste different. Because borscht is red. And this one is yellow, golden colour. So it, it, it's, uh, it's a bit funny on the brain eating uh, golden borscht, but it was delicious. And I had two meals out of it and shared with Father Justin. And, um, yeah, it was really nice. I'm going to try and make uh, golden uh, borscht relish next and see how that goes. Mm. That sounds good. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So to get into um, what I'm sure is on everybody's minds, the COVID pandemic, which is currently in its second wave, um, how would you describe the impact that this pandemic has had on the church? Oh, look, the impact um, has been great. I mean, huge. I mean, um, you know, never in our wildest dreams did we think, um, certainly at the height of the first wave, that, you know, when, when we had lockdown in Sydney, um, you know, celebrating all the Easter services in an empty church. Um, that was... Uh, very, very difficult, you know. Uh, you, you're going through, especially through Strastitest and through Holy Week, all the services. No one there, you know, and not even the sisters were there, you know. So one priest celebrated, the other priest sang, and we we, we just did everything. And um, and then, you know, when we did Vastrasna Utrinya, when we blessed the baskets on Saturday night, you know, there was no one there, you know, we... We stayed inside the church, but we we did everything. Um, so that's probably the first um, impact, you know, uh, not having the people there. But thanks be to God, in, in Sydney, certainly, people have slowly come back. But it's still not the same by far. Some people have not returned, and uh, we haven't got back to our regular uh, programs and scheduling. The way we conduct funerals and baptisms and weddings is very different. Thankfully, we've only had one wedding mm -hmm. uh, in this COVID time, which the bride and groom decided to proceed with, and that only had 20 people present. 
Um, so it's about the interaction with people, I think, that uh, we miss the most. And it has been most difficult is not having the people there. And also how we actually conduct ourselves. So, you know, the, the social distancing in church, you know, the hand sanitizer in yeah. church, the record keeping. And, you know, uh, the, the catch cry now is, you know, we have to be a COVID safe parish. Yeah. So, well. um, so since you mentioned that, you know, not having those people there is um, difficult. How have you like stayed in contact with people if they are having a difficult time with all of this, not being able to go to church? Look, we try to reach out to people as much as we possibly can, um, mainly using social media, um, using the phone, trying to keep in touch uh, from time to time if we can. Uh, sometimes even that is not possible. But people do contact us. Um, Often they just want some reassurance. They want to have a chat, and I'd, I'd say the vast majority of our of our faithful, have, you know, understood that this is a unique time that you know nobody ever expected anything like this to happen, and 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 they've been very good about it. Especially a lot of the older people um, have been very philosophical and say, well, tuck for no year, and that's yeah. how it is, yep. you know, and uh, we just adapt ourselves to that and we can pray at home we can so we've been fairly lucky in in, in that area but certainly um, there are there are people who are doing it very tough mm -hmm. i think more so in places like victoria where yeah. there is a full lockdown we, we've sort of come out of that um but it it, it certainly has had to it, it's affected us as priests on how we exercise our, our priestly ministry and uh, we've really got to think outside the square yeah, so that kind of leads to my next question. Actually, how does the, how has the church actually coped and managed with the um, the adaptations that have been needed? We could even specifically focus on like the tech side of things. Well, I mean, we've got to acknowledge uh, some here who have provided us with all the technical equipment that we can uh, live stream our our liturgies, and um, and that all happened very quickly. Um, you know, we uh, we had one Sunday where we were open with restrictions, where social distancing, hand sanitising, that all came about. And we thought we would continue with that for a number of weeks. But, you know, as we were preparing for that, um, the government made the announcement that as of Monday, churches will be closed, places of worship will be closed. And, and we were very fortunate um, that we'd already had the equipment set up. Um, I'm not the most tech-savvy person in the world, but I have actually learned how to, how to use it and, and uh, how to set up the Sunday services and sort of surprised myself on how, uh, how adaptable I've become. But it, it's, it's very hard for us priests, and it's not just for me. I mean, um, people say that, you know, I'm a natural in front of the camera. I don't think I am. The other priests often find it very difficult, especially when the church was empty and we had to deliver our sermon, our homily. And I'd often tell the other priests, when you're doing it, you know, Stop talking to an empty church. Just come forward, look into the camera, and pretend there are a hundred people standing in front of you. And, and they found that a bit uh, daunting at first, but all of them got used to it, and all of them done really well. But I mean, some of the other things that we've had to get used to is like using wooden spoons for Holy Communion. Mm, yeah, you know that's um, that was mandated by the bishop at the very beginning of this crisis. Um, you know. It took a while for us as priests to get our head around that. You know, it's not something we've done before and we had to work out how we're actually going to do it. And then even last week, you know, for the first time at the recommendation of some parish 
doctors. I wore a face mask when distributing Holy Communion. So, you know, as the information grows, as government issues more either requirements or recommendations, we have to find ways of adapting to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you mentioned that some people haven't come back, which is it's a devastating thing to hear. But in the future, looking forward, when restrictions hopefully do begin to ease, what do you think your plan will be to bring people back? Do you think you're going to have to do something maybe a little different or have some big event or something to bring people back to, ch to church? Look, I think firstly we have to look at, um, you know, restrictions haven't all been lifted. We are still limited mm -hmm. to how many people we can accommodate in the church. Social distancing is still in place. Um, and uh, COVID is, is real. It's out there in the community. It's here in Sydney. Um, twice this week, the Catholic Club today, again, mm -hmm. they've closed because of a uh, person in there with COVID. Um, and so those that haven't come back, they haven't come back for a very good reason. Um, a lot of them you know, may not be well themselves. They may be looking after elderly parents or grandparents. They may be in jobs where they might come into contact with someone who is infected and then don't want to come. So there are all sorts of reasons. And then there are other people who are just frightened of going out in public. Mm -hmm. And that is okay. Yep. There is nothing to worry about. We've continued with our streaming liturgies. You know, people have to do, in this case, as they feel is best for them and for their families and for the broader community. <sighs> what do we do once all this ends? Well, I think we uh, we throw a party. We, we, yeah, um, definitely. We say, that, we say the church is open and there'll be a barbecue afterwards. And, and uh, you're botched. We, we all come back. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, never know. I might be able to prepare, <laughs> prepare something grand from the garden. I hope people like kale because I've got tons of that. Uh, you know, so... When when the first restrictions were lifted and we were allowed to have 20, you know, we got 20 there and the joy on the faces of the people, you know, people were in tears and said, oh, thank God I can actually come back here. I've been missing this so much. Um, then we went to 50 people and the same reaction. And then, you know, some people were so good saying we people had to book in. Um, I, I had to keep a list of so we wouldn't get more than 50. And, and people would say, oh, I'm not going to go next Sunday. I'd really like to go next Sunday, uh, but I'm not going to go to let someone else go. Um, you know, or I've been two Sundays in a row. Maybe it's time that I, you know, make a spot for someone else. You know, so people are really, you know, caring and considerate in that aspect. And now, yeah, we were allowed to have 100 in the church uh, if we could match the, um, you know, the four square metre rule. Mm. Um, and we basically nearly got to that. We we're in the high 90s. And then the second wave hit Melbourne and, and people started reconsidering. And we, you know, as soon as that second wave hit and Melbourne imposed those restrictions, we dropped to nearly 40, only 40 people. That's come up a little bit since last week but we're sort of hovering around that mark you know because uh, people uh, people are still cautious um and rightly so but you know once this is all over which god willing will be sooner rather than later then you know things will be different you yeah. know they will be different the way we do things in the church may not be the same as they were six months ago or 12 months ago mm -hmm. but yet again not we don't i can't say exactly how this will you know pan out yeah. pan out yeah. yeah um now i do want to jump because i was as i was looking for your new titles mm -hmm. i saw that you shared a petition on your facebook page and it was from the archdiocese of sydney right. 
Now, um, I just want to read a quote from it because I thought it was very interesting, this quote. Um, it said, We appreciate that you are concerned about maintaining our physical health and committed to doing what you can to restore our economy. But this is not all we need to thrive. We need the freedom to have our spiritual needs met as well. The closures of churches has had a devastating effect on the Catholics and others who turn to prayer, particularly in difficult times. We are concerned that our needs are not being given equal attention when planning to the road to recovery. So I thought that was very interesting when it talked about the government's regulations and their priorities. So I was wondering, do you think that there has been a bias in favour of, let's say, economic venues as opposed to places of worship? Uh, I think at that point the answer is yes. However, the government, um, I, I think within 24 hours of that petition going online, the government changed its uh, position. Um, for those who aren't aware that um, when that petition was begun by the Archdiocese of Sydney, uh, pubs and clubs and restaurants were allowed to have 50 people inside and churches were only allowed to have 10. And you could have you could have 50 people outside, you could have 50 people at a meeting, you could have 50, as long as social distancing, churches mm -hmm. were restricted to 10. Yeah. And people saw that for what it was. It was silly. Yeah. Um, however, you know, on the other hand, you know, churches are places in which, you know, we have to be careful that we don't become centres where these things can be spread. And, and, and there have been examples. There have been the, 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 the funeral clusters over the last couple of weeks in Sydney, you know, where, where a person has gone to a funeral and then gone to another funeral and to another funeral. And, and today we heard that a, a lovely old lady from the Maronite Cathedral at Harris Park passed away. May God rest her soul. Mm. You know, she, she caught COVID at church. Um, now, that was a number of months ago and uh, she only passed away today. But, you know, these things are real and, you know, we accept and we acknowledge that government does have a responsibility to keep people safe um however there has to be you know we have to be treated like equally mm -hmm. uh, and, and i think you know that message has come through loud and clear and um that's that's now being done i mean i was thinking gyms as well gyms were open and churches weren't so people can heal themselves physically yes, and well, not spiritually so well, that 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 was an issue too now going to jump into some of the deep, well, not, I wouldn't say deep from your perspective, but from the theological side of things. Um, so I was reading my catechism, and this is um, where it talks about places that are favorable for prayer. This one says, the church, the house of God, is the proper place for the liturgical prayer of the parish community. It is also the privileged place for adoration of the real presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament. So I was just wondering, how do you think that our liturgies compare to in-person liturgies? Because if the church is supposed to be the proper place for worship, are we still getting liturgical prayer in its correct amounts? Like we're not getting penance and we aren't getting the Eucharist. So or are we missing out on anything? Well, the, the short answer is yes, people are missing out. Um, uh, that, that goes without saying. Um, can an online liturgy substitute for really being there? Well, no, it can't. However, extraordinary circumstances require an extraordinary solution. And the only solution that was practical and continues to be practical is to encourage people who are not physically able to be present in a church to unite spiritually via means of their computer via YouTube, Facebook, whatever. Um, 
you know, the closing of churches in pandemics is not something new. Going way back, you know, to, to Milan, I mean, St. Charles Borromeo, the Archbishop of Milan, I think in the 16th century, ordered all the churches closed during the plague before they even had a concept of how things were spread and infections were spread. Um, during the flu pandemic in 1919 uh, in Sydney, uh, they still had masses, but they were outdoors. There are photos of a little altar set up um, in front of St Mary's Cathedral and people spread out in the streets around it. Social attending distancing, Mass on Sunday, Social distancing, yep. yes. And, you know, the government said, yes, you can do this, but the Mass has to be short, no singing, no homily, um, people come and go. And, and, and people didn't receive Holy Communion, uh, as far as I'm aware at those times. So, uh, I mean, they're not unheard of, but people shouldn't get used to praying, to, to attending the Divine Liturgy, to attending church services at home once this is over. Once this is over, you have an obligation to come to church because it is the true place of worship. Mm -hmm. The place of prayer can be anywhere, but the place of worshipping the one true God, which we do through the divine and holy liturgy, can only take place in a church or in another sacred place set okay. aside. So, I mean, from a theological point of view, um, you know, w w we are adapting, we're doing the best we can, um, and people are doing that. And one of the beautiful things over Easter was the people who were sending me photographs of how they'd set up little altars at home yeah, yep. with the icons, with the flowers, with their Pusca baskets and all that, and on Palm Sunday how they decorated their church. on uh, their, well, Yes, they decorated their church, their home church. And that's what it has become. It's become a home church. So this is a, a temporary solution to a problem. And once this problem uh, vanishes, God willing, we'll start getting back to normal. And that probably leads into the next question is, yeah. are you going to continue with live streaming? Yes, yes. And, and that's, that, you know, if you'd asked me this three, four, five months ago, I would have given you a definite no, we're going to finish with live streaming. Um, but I've sort of changed my mind on that one. I mm -hmm. think there is, a, there is a place for it. Certainly, you know, we have a parishioner who is 99 years old who sits with his iPad on the ready every Sunday morning. And uh, this guy is super cool with an iPad. He actually FaceTimed me the other week. <laughs> uh, and he's 99 going on 100. And um, and his son tells me that, that you know, he, he just doesn't watch the service once. He'll watch it, the Sunday service he'll watch every day, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's on in the background sometimes, you know, because it, that's his connection with the community. He can't come here because of his age and because of COVID. But that, and you've got to keep, you know, things like that in mind. The other thing, you know, we have a group of Ukrainian Catholics in uh, Thailand and in Singapore who tune in every Saturday and every Sunday. Oh. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, so, I remember yeah. at the start, someone from, I think it was Italy or Rome, maybe, sent a photo. Yeah, a friend, a friend yeah. of mine who lives in Rome decided for his Sunday liturgy that Sunday, he'd, he'd tune into St. Andrew's YouTube yeah. and follow the liturgy there. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's very heartwarming for me you know, at the time. You know, we were by ourselves in the church mm -hmm. you know, to, to come home and you know, sit in front of the computer and see this. Um, you know that you know it, it does make a difference for people, and uh, therefore you know we have to find opportunities to uh, take that uh, technology that we have and use it for good in the future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, just something I thought of: if like the people that set up their home altars, is that still considered liturgical parish prayer, or would that be personal prayer, or is that no. like a really fine line? <laughs> no, uh, if they're tuned in 
uh, on Sundays than they're participating in the prayer of the church and the okay. divine liturgy. I, I mean, I'm no great theologian on that. Maybe there are those who would split hairs and say no. But if they're, if they're singing along with the Slushba Borsha, with the divine liturgy, mm-hmm. for me, that's participating in the Sunday liturgy 100%, even though they physically can't be here. So as we all know, Ukrainian Catholics in Australia were appointed a new bishop. Um, what can you tell us about him and his previous experience in the church? Yes, well, in January, I think it was January the 15th, we were notified that uh, Pope Francis had appointed Father, then Father Mikola Bichok, um, as the third eparch for the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Australia, New Zealand, and Oceania. Um, and all of us sat around, we scratched our heads, and nobody knew him. We had no idea who he was. The only thing we knew that he was a redemptorist, so he belongs to the Order of Redemptorists, which is the same order that Bishop Peter belongs to, and that he was at that time the assistant priest of a parish, um, I, think he was, I think it was in New Jersey, in the United States. That he was from Ukraine, he was born in, uh, in Ternopil and uh, became a redemptorist, and subsequently we heard that he spent some time working in a Ukrainian parish in Siberia, he'd worked in a parish in Ternopil, he'd worked in a parish in Lviv, and for these last three years he'd worked in a parish in, um, in the United States. He was very young, he was 39 when he was appointed, um, and that's basically all we knew about him. Since then, you know, we've all met him online, he participates, we, we have monthly um, clergy meetings uh, on Zoom. Uh, He participates in that every month and uh, we're just waiting for him to get here and start work, which he can't do till the government issues him with a visa, which they haven't yet done because apparently all those sorts of visas are on hold until this whole COVID thing is sorted. So, you know, he he was ordained a bishop on Pentecost Sunday in Lviv by Patriarch Svetoslav and since then he's... um, He's been waiting to come here. For how many months now? His ordination as a bishop was supposed to take place a week after Easter. Um, I was going to fly over for that. I was, you know, I'd actually booked a ticket for that. Uh, I was to fly there. I still thought that this COVID thing wouldn't... Yeah, that I booked the ticket maybe two months in advance. I thought, no, nah, it's not going to happen, not going to happen, but it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, we expected him to be enthroned. We were planning on having his in- official installation as the new bishop... Uh, end of May, early June. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it was all planned to take place in Melbourne. But again, you know, we've had to adapt. Bishop Peter continues to be the administrator of the eparchy. He's still running the show officially. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bishop McCullough is patiently waiting and learning about us and meeting with all of us online. And uh, Yeah, well, can't, can't wait to get here, I guess. Can't wait to get here, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned he worked in New Jersey do you think having that diaspora experience is going to help him when he comes to Australia as opposed to if he had been a you know pr- priest only working in Ukraine then coming over? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> um, we are a diaspora church. Whilst our roots are in Ukraine, um, we are an Australian Ukrainian Catholic church and anyone who argues that we're not needs to have their head read. And that goes particularly to people in Ukraine who think that, you know, that things are the same in the Ukrainian Catholic church in every country in the world. Well, well, they're not. And it's not just language. A lot of it has to do with culture. 
we can't throw out the window, you know, 75 years of Ukrainian life in Australia and how we have adapted to that. And then that's been, you know, our, our Ukrainian life in Australia has been supplemented by more recent arrivals from Ukraine. We learn from them, they learn from us, and, and so the ball keeps rolling. But you, you, you can't think that the church can just be, you know, that it transplanted from Ukraine to Australia and it's the same here. Well, certain things, of course, are the same, but, you know, other things are very different. Well, that's reassuring. So when he arrives, is he planning on doing like a tour? Or something. Oh look, uh, I, I would uh, I would presume he would. Uh, he'd like to get to see everyone and get to know all the parishes and the people. So I'm sure once uh, once he's allowed into the country and once uh, certain state premiers lower <laughs> you know, their borders and uh, open up a bit, that'll all happen. Fantastic. Is that something that you'd say you're excited about? Like you know, I don't don't remember how long it's been since we had a new. Bishop. 27 years. 27 years. Okay, so that's older than me, me and you. you. Yeah, there you go. Well, this will, this will now be my third bishop, so I've been through this before. So. <laughs> but what about him coming is exciting to you? Like, what are you most looking forward to? Oh, I think, you know, uh, new ideas, new opportunities. You know, Bishop Peter has served here for 27 years. That's a, that's a long time. Um, I've been a priest for 26 I was a deacon for a year, so basically I started my ministry in Australia at the exact same time as Bishop Peter did, so even though I grew up with uh, Bishop Ivan, um, who sent me to the seminary. Um, but I, I think every uh, bishop brings his own gifts and his own talents uh, to, to share uh, with the people here, and so we just await with anticipation. Is he young for a bishop, would you say, or is he kind of around uh, the same age? In the general scheme of things, yes, he is, but... In Ukraine now, they seem to be appointing lots of baby bishops. I mean, the, the bishop who was ordained before him was 38. Okay. Um, bishop Stefan Sus from the uh, from St. Peter's uh, Garrison Church in Lviv became a bishop, and he was 38. And it, it's not unusual for bishops in Ukraine to be appointed in their late 30s or early 40s. Certainly in Australia, it's very unusual, although not. it has happened before. There have been bishops appointed in their mid-40s. Um, some in their early 40s. Archbishop Fischer, I think, was in his early 40s when he became a bishop. Bishop Ivan Preshko was 45, I think, when he became a bishop. Bishop Peter was 50 when he became a bishop. So, you know, as someone once said to me, age is but a number. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. So, can you please elaborate on your positions as, and uh, now I'm probably going to get this wrong, so please correct my uh, pronunciation, Vicar General of the Eparchy and Chancellor of the Eparchy. Right. No, you've got that correct. Oh, fantastic. Vicar I was General. Practicing. Uh, the Ukrainian word is protosinkel, um, protosinkelos. Uh, In English, we call that Vicar General. And uh, the word protosinkelos in Greek actually means the one who shares the cell with the right. bishop. Oh, with the bishop. Okay. Yeah, so you, 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 you sleep in the same room as the bishop. So thankfully, right. I don't have to do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, being a vicar general, that's, that's uh, defined by canon law. It's, uh, every bishop has to have a vicar general. It's his basically two IC. Um, it's someone who um, uh, has authority to act in the name of the bishop 
And if the bishop should leave the territory of the eparchy, then the proto-synkolos or the vicar general exercises the authority of the bishop uh, in the absence of the bishop. Uh, on top of that, it, it means that I'm in charge of various aspects in, in eparchial governance. Uh, that, so the chancellor is the one who makes sure all the secretarial work is done and uh, archives are kept. And you know, We've got good people in Melbourne who look after that, so I'm not terribly worried about that. But often, you know, decrees have to be written and countersigned, and I, I write them and countersign them. And um, So it's about being probably the closest of the co-workers with the bishop. The bishop can exercise his authority on his own, but the church also requ requests that he share uh, his authority uh, in a number of different ways. I mean, the bishop is the sole teacher in the church, but all the priests teach via preaching, but we do so because that is something that we are granted from the bishop. He shares that ministry with us. So is it kind of like a vice president? Oh, yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, I, I would never want to put uh, a political uh, <laughs> sort of connotation to a church role. Um it's it's a lot of responsibility. My my main responsibility is is uh, supporting priests. Mm -hmm. It's trying to support priests in parishes, being a go to person for them. It frees the bishop up. You know, sometimes uh, it involves playing you know, like a good cop versus bad cop role. Mm -hmm. um, very rarely, because we have very good priests, so uh, that that doesn't really apply. Um, I often have to represent the bishop at things. Where I mean, we're a very big eparchy. Um, a couple of years ago, I flew to Adelaide to represent him there for the funeral of the archbishop, who I knew personally, and he said, oh, look, you go. And then when he goes to Canada or to Ukraine, if any major problems turn up, in the past, I would have had to deal with them, you know, as best I knew. But with modern communication, you know, it's only ever a Skype call or a phone call or an email away. Mm. Um, although Bishop Peter does like to go into the, the boonies to go hunting and things. So there are times <laughs> when you can't contact him. And he normally sends an email, sort of, I'm off, I'm off on my trip, you know, no email for the next two weeks. Good luck. <laughs> you know, so it's it's about keeping you know, the ship on a steady course mm. if the bishop's not present. Yeah, and it involves a phone call nearly every day at the moment. You know, we're on the phone all the time because there's just so much governance issues in the church. You know, with dealing with government, dealing with COVID, dealing with you know professional standards, child protection, mm -hmm. all that. Yep. So a lot of that um, you know is delegated to me. Um, so I just have a question for myself personally. So, being Catholic, we're obviously part of the um, wider Catholic Church that includes uh, other Catholic churches as well, like the Latin Church, uh, Greek Byzantine Catholic Church, Hungarian Greek Catholic Church, and then we have you know, Ukrainian Catholic Church as well. Um, so, I guess you could say maybe that we're an appendage of the wider Catholic Church, or, or maybe more that we're we're under the umbrella of the wider Catholic Church. So, do we work with any of these other Catholic churches, and how are we like linked to Rome? That's the question I've always wondered. That might be uh, that might be a topic that we could have a whole separate <laughs> podcast on. But very briefly, we are not an appendage. Uh -huh. Uh, of the Catholic Church, we are not uh, even, you know, you could say under the umbrella of the Catholic Church. Uh, we are a part of the Catholic Church, and uh, uh, but we are a church of our own right. You know, canon law refers to the Ukrainian Catholic Church as well as the other Eastern Catholic churches as being churches sui of their own law. Um, 
And so we are in communion with the Church of Rome. Um, we have our own traditions, our own practices, our own rites. We are in communion with the Pope, with the Bishop of Rome, um, and that communion then spreads out um, in all different ways of how we um, share uh, ministry and, and we recognize the church the, the pope's authority as um, you know the uh, the first uh, as as a successor of Saint peter um the prince of the apostles and his teaching authority in the church we we accept that we work very closely with catholic churches in australia with all the dioceses uh, the bishop is a member of the australian catholic bishops conference um, Eastern churches, you know, we're not the only Eastern eparchy. There are five Eastern eparchies in Australia for the various churches. And, um, you know, be it in Catholic education, be it in other areas, um, you know, we work as closely as possible with, uh, with the local Roman church. They, they often help us uh, with more practical things um, because we're too small to handle them ourselves. Um, and so we do rely upon them in areas where we do not have our own expertise or our own ability to, 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 to do something. We, we often ask for help, and they've always been very gracious in, in giving us that help. That's very nice of them. Um, for those people that don't know, uh, what would you say are the three major differences between the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, in your opinion? I'm not going to speak on differences because... It's differences which separate, and we have to think about coming together. I think the better question is, what are the similarities between mm -hmm. the Catholic and Orthodox churches? And the similarities, there are a lot more of them. There's more that unites us than separates us. You know, we always, you know, oh, what, what's the difference between the two? Well, yeah, there are differences. There are differences... You know, in, in certain practices uh, of, of, of law that I'm probably not even qualified to talk about because I don't look at differences, I look at similarities. And I think, you know, if we uh, as a community uh, want to come together, um, when we look at division, what separates, what are the differences, then we're already starting with an attitude of the glass being half empty. Let's look at the things we have in common which basically is our faith that comes from Volodymyr Volecki, from Kiev, um, and our glass is half full, and then we can work on topping it up. Okay, well, well, that brings us to the end. Thank you very much for being here with us today, Attach Simon. And we would also like to wish your father well. Um, oh, thank you. Yes. He's okay. He's, he's got a second wind now that he's at home. So oh, fantastic. That's good to hear. Uh, well, thank you for coming on, and we look forward to speaking with you in the future. Coming up now are the short news stories of the week. This week in the news. British-based airline company EasyJet has been granted a license to fly into Ukraine. They initially planned to launch with 12 weekly flights. The current COVID-19 situation means the Ukrainian government has not granted permission for the traditional pilgrimage by thousands of Hasidic Jews to the city of Uman for Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah. In 2019, more than 30,000 pilgrims celebrated the 5,780th New Year in Uman. Iranian officials have advised they do not plan to compensate Ukrainian's national airlines for the loss of its aeroplane in January of this year. 
Negotiations still continue about whether Iran will pay for compensation to the families of Ukrainian victims. Massive protests have erupted in the Belarusian capital of Minsk in reaction to electoral fraud in the recent presidential elections held on August 9th. Next week, we'll take a deeper look at why Ukraine should be supporting these protests. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit our website uklifeabroad.com to stay informed on this and other stories.